Hi guys! Welcome back to Constructing Damsels. This is me, Jessica, your usual host. I'm doing my own episode today. I wanted to explain why I took a little bit of a break. For this past two weeks or so, I took a break because Editor Sven, also known as my husband, had a lot, a lot of things to edit last month. And I wanted to make sure that he had the opportunity to relax a little. I mean, he did three Patreon episodes plus three regular long episodes. That was a really long month for him. So fairness is fair, right? So I went ahead and took a little bit of a break, but I'm back. I also want to do a little bit of housekeeping because December through June, I'm going to have a little bit harder time coming up with episodes on a more regular basis. And that's just simply because I'm going to be going to language school for somewhere between 20 and like 22 hours a week. It's going to be like a little over four hours a day, five days a week for six months. It's an intensive integration course and I, I'm very excited to go, but I'm just letting you guys know what's up because I think it's only fair. So I'm going to put out as much content as I can. I have some advantages of having Sven here because we can do our usual Christmas episodes and stuff like that and we'll be fine with that. But I wanted to go ahead and discuss that. I also wanted to talk about I'm looking for people to come on the show. Like I right now, well, starting in December, I will only be able to record on Saturday mornings. So before like noon Eastern Standard Time because my husband does his D&D game on Saturday and I don't want to disrupt that and also on Sundays Sundays all day and I mentioned that because again I'm going to be going to school <laughs> and there's commuting there's going to school and then there's like doing homework and making sure everything's up and the up and up because I have to pass these courses to stay here so I want to make sure I'm absolutely doing what I need to do and I'm getting where I need to go that's your heads up. So today I'm going to be talking about an arc that I read. It's Elizabeth Hoyt's When a Rogue Meets His Match. And I fucking loved it. I thought it was amazing. I really appreciate it when people give me the opportunity to read early editions because oftentimes I buy the books. Like 99.9% of the time, these episodes are books that I bought or, you know, I've I've purchased them, so I want to make sure that I'm very grateful that NetGalley gave me the opportunity to read an ARC and that I'm able to talk about it. I also have another one coming up <laughs> next month because this one releases in December and so does Amy Andrews' Playing With Trouble, which I really enjoyed, or I'm enjoying because I'm finishing it now. And there's a couple other things I want to do, so, you know, a little grace, and I would appreciate it because it's been very very long this past month trying to get everything situated now let's take like five seconds and say thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you to my patreons thank you to d carrie marlene and kelly i want to thank you guys so much for having faith and purchasing and helping <laughs> this podcast because it really does especially the having to buy the books thing it really does pay off if anyone is interested, you can go to patreon.com slash damselspodcast, and you can see there's everything from a dollar to $12, so I'm, I'm trying to offer a little bit more. I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and I hope that you guys will enjoy the Patreon stuff coming up, because <laughs> upcoming 
Courtney and I did Kissing the Coronavirus. We read it and we talked about it. And if you want to have an interesting time, we also talk about some more. And she promised to actually read some more of that and, and give me reviews. So, so we'll see how this goes. Okay, all right, guys. We are going to go on to the episode finally, like five minutes in. So here's what I loved about Elizabeth Hoyt's work. I haven't read that much of her before, but obviously I read a lot of historical and her name is very prominent in what people enjoy and what they have and what they what they look for in a romance and a historical romance. And I totally get it. Totally. Get it. I've read her once or twice before, but not that much. So I found it very interesting to see what was going on. And what I loved about her world was there was obviously the romance, right? I mean, duh. but there was also political intrigue. There was family drama, like a broken family, which I, I love broken families because I love seeing those families mended because it's not always realistic and we always have broken elements in our, our life in real life. There's always some part that's always scattered or not in it and even though you want them to be and I love to see the way things kind of curl back and it takes a while, but I really liked it. I have not read the first in the series, so I was somewhat confused. But not enough that I was, like, majorly upset. Like, I, I didn't understand Freya's point of view, which was Messalina's best friend. But I, I figured out enough that I understood it, right? Like, there's a really good job of saying the most important parts of the previous book without giving anything away. I appreciate that. That was cool. So, here is one thing I really, really, really enjoyed. I fucking loved Messalina. Oh my god, the the love I hold for this character is so high right now, I cannot explain it. This is a woman who knew herself, knew what she wanted. Messalina Greycourt was not here for shit. Like, she negotiated her forced marriage with her upcoming husband, Gideon, and so it's this whole thing, right? Like, she's taking her destiny into her hand. Like, fine, Uncle Augustus, you want to put me in a fucked situation? perfectly valid let me just figure out this is the way i want to do it let me make sure my little sister is safe lucretia will be safe let me negotiate my money that's mine that you're getting so it comes back to me let's negotiate how this is going to work and i love that because i think the genre is getting more and more involved in while it may not always be historically accurate because some people could not do this, there's nothing to say other people couldn't. Because to say that it's a very small pond is true, but there are also things that we just don't know, right? Like gossip can tell you, but if it's not written down, we don't know. So it kind of leaves a lot of area, gray area, interestingly enough. So it, it really works. And I love that Messalina did not, waste time and i noticed in this book that like all the characters were obviously named i think roman names there was a mezzalina lucretia quintus julian and ariella and then there was our uncle augustus which if you think of augustus <laughs> as one of the emperors it makes a lot more sense right 
So I, I really appreciated that. It kind of gave you a, a background of, of what was going on. I mean, at least they weren't named Julia, even though there was a Julian. So does that mean that he's going to follow the, the, like, the Julian, you know, line in, in Rome and start killing people? But what I really liked about it was the fact that Messalina felt more like someone I would want to know. She was forced in situations she didn't want to be in, but she handled them with clarity. She saw in that moment what she needed to do, and she did it. Like, when we first meet her, she's being attacked by robbers, you know, she was by the uh, people that go up and down, the highwaymen and stuff like that. And what she did was kind of badass, because you open the book, and she's peeing in the carriage. Again, not something you see in, in historicals very often, but you know people got to go pee at some point, right? But what I like is the fact she got her, like, little tiny traveling chamber pot and just okay so Messalina snatched the bordello from the maid's hand and flung it in their attacker's face the china bounced off his forehead dousing him in urine Messalina punched him hard he tumbled back out of the carriage she slammed the door closed after him and looked at Bartlett the other woman's face was white that was er quick thinking miss Messalina straightened trying and failing to control the heart the heat rising in her cheeks yes well needs must Outside, someone screamed and was suddenly cut off. Messalina found herself holding her breath in trepidation. Holy shit! She literally beat... She just thunked a guy with a chamber pot. Oh my god, this is why I love this lady. Like, this is something my family would do. Like, I've told this story before, but... So, my elder godmother was at home and... They were, I think it was like her dad's death. And so they were having the memorial or whatever in the house. And her brother-in-law came up and groped her on her chest. Like he just copped a feel. And she was just like, excuse me? So she turned around, got a cast iron skillet off the fucking stove and hit him with it. So the pan was not only dense, hot, because it had fried chicken in it. Like, this is something I can appreciate on every level. So if you give me a character, if you give me a woman character that uses, like, ingenuity and needs and you fix it and it's, ah, this makes me love a character so much. Like, the, the, you heard that noise that came out of me. It's, it's like a visceral reaction because it's something that I grew up with. It's very connecting for me. And then you get to find out that, you know, she's been kidnapped by this guy who has been told that he's like, that's her new husband. And she's like, the hell you said? And then you get the description of him. And it's interesting, and I'll explain why in a minute. Mr. Hawthorne wasn't a particularly big man. One didn't immediately think on first glance, here's a fellow I should avoid at all costs if I value my life. It was a second look that did it. The one that noticed the competent muscled frame, the dangerously economical way he moved, and his sudden stillness as if he were gathering himself to attack. And then there was his face. Mr. Hawthorne had the countenance of a devil. His eyebrows formed a deep V over his eyes, the outer edges winging up in a demonic slant. On his right cheek was a long vertical scar, thin and ominous. He was an intimidating man. A frightening man. Now, so I'm laughing because I love Gideon. I think he's great. But this description always reminds me of Ever After, the guy that Drew's character threatened to slit open if, she, if he didn't release her. 
that's <laughs> that's what he reminds me of and i can't help it because it's just it's that look it's just the first thing that popped into my mind was the guy from ever after him i i forgot it very quickly but i just want to put that out there this is the literal image i saw and i i like the way they kind of work together they find their they find their levels because mr hawthorne gideon has been looking to protect her for a while because he knows that her uncle is psychotic like there's no other word do believe in like death works for him i'm like probably not the best thing you've ever gotten from roman history my dude but sure whatever and there's this feeling of you can see where he's like loved her from afar because it talks about it he it goes um she only been a girl when he had first entered the old man's service young and long-limbed not a child at 14 but certainly not yet a woman he'd made a note of her along with all the great court siblings julian the eldest as trustworthy as his uncle quintus who had been in a sod at the age of 18 still mourning the death of his twin sister Ariella, and mezzalina grave beyond her years lucretia the youngest pretty and mischief to gideon mezzalina had been simply one of the aristocracy born to lounge about in silk and jewels eating turkish delight with soft white fingers while the rest of the world slaved she was just like every other high-born lady and yet he'd watched her even then he'd spied from the shadows a rough st giles lad invisible among the duke's dozens of servants gideon might have only been a couple years older than mezzalina but they were worlds apart he'd observed as she'd grown into womanhood as she donned rustling dresses and put her hair into intricate loops on tops of her head, watched as she laughed at the young fops who gathered around her like washed bone to spilled beer. She wasn't for him. That was always clear. Even so, he had not been able to tear his gaze away. She made something inside him want. I love that because I, I love when they talk about destroying class lines in stories, but also I love the fact that he's aware of it. Like, Messalina, throughout the story, you learn she's not. And I'm not going to tell you how and why, what, where she comes to that conclusion, because it's important to the story, and I don't want to give too much away, because A, the book is not out yet, but B, also because the journey in the story is really, 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 really good, guys. Like, it's, you want to, you want to read it, you want to listen to it. But one thing that I really appreciate about him is, is he always keeps that classism and that elitism in check. Like, he openly talks about it. He's not afraid to say, I came from the gutter. Like, I, I came from the worst area you could be in. And it scarred me in ways that I that he couldn't describe. And it made him into someone he wasn't. But he was so thoroughly there and present for what she was fighting and what she was going through and what she was witnessing and it was beautiful to watch they had their problems they had their issues because it's hard to open up when you've always had to be closed off when you were you know a kid on the street and trying to stay alive when you you went through a lot of trauma and then you had to find your way and it's not easy and i i appreciate the fact that in this story they kind of talk about that they they talk about how moving up is not easy and there are some scenes with Bartlett, who is her lady's maid, who talk about how the ease that the aristocracy holds is not the ease that most people hold. And I love that. I love the fact that Messalina and Bartlett are friends. 
not like, you know, bosom buddy friends, but they're friends in a way of like, you're friends with your coworker almost like, like there's an awareness that comes from being there and finding out what's going on. And I, I think it's fantastic. And I like the fact that uh, there is Freya, which I mentioned who came from the first book, her family and the gray courts were friendly and then they weren't. And then uh, it had something to do with like, um, Aurori, Leah, I'm gonna call her Leah. It has something to do with Leah, like her death and, and, you know, Freya's brother and, there was this whole thing, and it's interesting because, like, Freya's family seems to have more of a Celtic or a Nordic because she's Freya and her sister is Elspeth. So there's obviously, like, it's interesting to see how these names lay out and kind of gives you a clue onto how their, how their worlds interact. But ultimately, they talk about the wise women when, you know, Marcelina and Freya kind of get together and they all converge with, with Lucretia and Elizabeth and a few others. And, and you learn about the wise women and you learn how it it's kind of like, it's almost like a nunnery, but not. It's more like a closed, but it's like a sec, it's like a secular place where women learn and they maintain things. And then at some point, I'm guessing in the first book, it was, you know, um, broken up and that's why Freya's little sister is there and Elspeth is there and it's but it's just a very interesting thing and I like the fact that they've incorporated all this folklore in into their worlds and I appreciate that Hoyt made that very clear distinction on why she did it and it also explains a lot about Gideon because Gideon is very closed off like I mentioned he's very he worries about things like but he also pays attention to his, to Messalina and then later Messalina as his wife. Like, he doesn't just wipe everything away. There are some things that he won't do and such and such, but it really works out in the long run. I will say that one of the things she negotiated in the contract for the marriage was a dog. And they bring in a little Italian greyhound type dog. And that just makes me grin and giggle a little bit because I had an Italian greyhound for a while and... I love them. They are such energetic dogs and they're very like movement. And obviously it's going to be a very different Italian Greyhound because in 200 years breeds change, different stock, all that kind of stuff. But I, I can understand the basic idea of these dogs. And I love the fact that Messalina is aware she can't care for the dog like say I care for a penny. So she gets this young guy in the kitchen, Sam, to take care of her. And it really works out and it's this great it's great to watch how Daisy, Daisy is a boy, by the way. It's interesting to see how Daisy manages to shape how people interact in the house and, and how they work out. And I just, I thought that was amazing. I'm not going to get too much into that because some of that story goes into Gideon's. And I, I really don't want to tell Gideon's story because I think you need to read it. I, I think Gideon is very important in that way. He reminded me a little bit of he reminded me a lot of Clayton from Joanna Shoup's uh, The Prince of Broadway very much that that style I want to point that out because I think it's important to note that it gives you a little bit of a reference on how he's come up and what he's had to do to get there Gideon has got a very sad past and it made, it made my heart hurt, and I'm going to give you that fair warning now because uh, it's got some issues to do with childhood, and 
content warning for that because I, I don't want you to read it if, if you have issues reading about child abuse and stuff like that. But I want to point it out because it was a really dangerous time to grow up when you were not rich. And I mean, it still is, don't get me wrong, but the way society treated its lessers, its lower class, was very obvious and it kind of helped Messalina, I think, as well. But when, okay, so when Hawthorne kidnapped her, because <laughs> essentially that's what he did in her mind because she was going to see her uncle and or somewhere and then he came and got her and said no no you're going to to get married to me and she was like say what now so she sent lucretia because they were traveling together with to find her brothers julian and quintus at the gray court family estate which is obviously in not it's not in ruin and but it's very in disrepair obviously so because their father used to be the aristocracy right but then he died and so their uncle took it anyway i think that's basically what i was reading though okay so anyway they go back and she finds quinn in his cups because that's all he ever does and julian cold and ignoring but they finally get back and they find you know by that point she's already married to gideon and she has no opportunity for anything to change and boys being boys are assholes and the scene when the the three men are together, you, you can just feel how angry she is at how they're treating her. And she says, the tension in the room from the men was thick, awful. She wanted to shout at them. They were acting as if they were dogs about to fight over a bone. And really, she was much more than a mere bone. Seriously, I love it when that happens because it's like, come on, guys. Like, women are more than that. And we're, we're worth, we have much more value. And I love that. And that's after quite a bit of, of Messalina and Gideon bonding because it takes like two weeks for, you know, the rest of her siblings to get there to kind of create another section. But what I really appreciated was the fact that Messalina is still trying to help him before this point. Like she makes it very clear. She's like, okay, well, you want to do these things. I have the knowledge, I have the connections, I have the ability to move through society, so let me help you. Because Gideon owns some mines and he wants to open more and become, you know, better equipped for all that and stuff like that. So, you know, he wants to get the people at the higher echelon to invest their money but he tries to go about it the way he's been doing it, and that doesn't work because he can't just go up to an earl and say, hey, yo, invest, right? Like, you have to, there are stages and there are things you do and, and you involve and you you have to look the part. And it's something we all understand as we, especially those of us that have been living in lower socioeconomic classes, not to say we have been lower, but just we know that there are different social structures that we have to follow. Right? Like, we can't just be ourselves often enough. You have to play the part to get what you need. It's disgusting and it's a pain in the ass, but we have to do it. And he's always been kind of like, I mean, I hate to say it, but he's a bit like Jason Morgan on General Hospital. That's kind of like where Gideon falls. He's the one that gets the shit done. He's the, the muscle man. He's the, 
the guy that you don't want to cross who will have no problem screwing up your life. None of that. So it's very important. I'm noticing this, noticing this because he's having to learn how to be someone else. And that's not always easy. And it's very hard because when you want to stay in the background, except when you need to come out, it's very hard to be forced to be coming out. And I appreciated the fact that Messalina was willing to help him and that Gideon was really listening. He didn't always listen because he thought he knew best. But ultimately, what she was saying about certain things was to his benefit and he realized it. And I, I liked watching their journey as a couple. And I wouldn't say they were even enemies to lovers. I would say they were more like upper lower class. You know, like Edith, I think, and Downton Abbey married the chauffeur driver. That that kind of, you know, up down. And I appreciated the fact that she didn't always hold everything he did against him. Some stuff, absolutely. Full on, he deserved it. It, it was what it was. And just like, you know, she was learning how to be with him. And they had this... They had this romance that felt like a romance. It wasn't insta-love. It wasn't insta-woo. It was, okay, I have to tolerate you from Messalina's side, so I will. And I think that's really important to add to the context because some of the historical ones, and I love them, you know, it's instant like, ooh, I'm attracted. Let's go, you know, in the bedroom where she's kind of like, I'll like you. You work for my, my uncle and I know what you do, right? Like, do I look, do I look like I'm going to fall for that? But over time, she learns who he is and what he is outside of her uncle's employment. Her And he married her because his uncle said, you know, basically, do this and you can marry my niece. He didn't say what it was and what it comes out to be is something very... It could be something very damaging to multiple people in, in the family unit on multiple sides. And so when it comes out, you know, Gideon has to make up his mind and his decision on some things. But it was interesting to see how he learned to take her her feelings into account when he didn't trust his own. I love that. I think it's fantastic. I think it's good. I think it's smart. I I love that kind of work and I also like the fact that Gideon is protective of her when Julian is being an ass in that first introduction for all three of the men he uh, he says some things that he shouldn't have he says I think Julian enunciated with slow cut glass accents that I am disappointed in how easily you have submitted to a watch your words Gideon snapped you ass Messalina said at the same time to Julian, you pompous, selfish ass. I, disappointed you, when have you done anything for me or Lucretia or even Quintus in the last decade? Have you thought to ask Lucretia if she has any suitors? Have you taken Quintus's bottles and bottles of wine away from him? Have you inquired on me how my life is? No, she said, dodging around Gideon and advancing on Julian. All you've done is obsessed over Uncle Augustus's doings. Julian simply looked at her, with good reason, it assumes, but Melissina wasn't done. She had lived under the dictates of great court men for years and years and had been forced into marriage against her will and now was being blamed for it. She was sick of everything. You failed Lucretia. You failed Quintus. You failed me, brother. And before that, you failed Aurelia. Behind her, Lucretia gasped. 
Julia merely blinked slowly as a lizard. Had he hadn't had he any heart at all, or had years of living with their uncle as a youth frozen any emotions he had? In contrast, Quintus went white and strode towards to grip her arm. Don't say her name. Quinn, Julia muttered softly in warning, just as Gideon shoved Quintus away from Melusina. Keep your hands off my wife. And with that, Quintus swung at Gideon. Like, Gideon knows there's stuff that he has to do, and he knows that all this power play is in, in happening, but he ultimately knows that no matter what, Melusina does not deserve to be treated in such a way. And what I find more complimentary to that is the fact that Melusina knows. Melusina knows. She's like, fuck that. I'm a grown-up. I was forced to do things I didn't want. I was forced to be someone I wasn't happy to be. I had been nothing but you guys' play toy for years. And fuck that. And this is why I like her. She doesn't take this stuff. She doesn't take anything lying down. And I'm trying not to say too much about the the romance because I think it's really worth reading. But I think it's important. So I'm going to give you one scene that I thought was really well done. So Gideon has one thing that really offers him happiness and, and joy within his home. Like Whispers, the house is very... He bought it, and he didn't really set it up for much. It was kind of like it, it did what it needed to do. He had very minimal servants. Most of them had already worked for him in other positions, or he found them in other places and gave them jobs, which is how the cook doesn't know how to cook. Not fancy meals. But what's ultimately better is the fact that he's got one room that is just his and his alone. And I think that's probably my favorite scene between them that's not like like other parts of their their love making and their romance and they're going together and she finds this bath it's literally a bathroom it's nothing but a bath in there and she goes but this bath she poured the cup over his hair careful to keep the water off his face he sighed tilting his head into her hand and she wondered if he was aware of the movement i stank when i lived in saint giles what she stared at him his beautiful mouth was twisted by some bitter memory. When you are poor, you stink. Lice crawl in your clothes, in your hair. Grime is ground in the grooves of your hands. Your hair becomes greasy. And when someone sees you, someone who has water and soap and a ready fire, their eyes fill with disgust. That's how your uncle looked at me when we first met, as if I were shit stuck to his shoe. I, she swallowed another cup hovering over his hair. I'm sorry. What an inadequate word. She slowly poured the water over his head and then picked up the soap, lathering her hands. I have heard aristocrats bemoan the laziness of the poor, he said softly, a muscle tense in his jaw. They say that we enjoy wallowing in filth. I don't think any human likes being dirty. No, she agreed. To bathe, he took a deep breath as if to steady his voice. To bathe in St. Giles, I'd have to haul water from the common pump up floor after floor of stairs because we lived like sheep pen together for slaughter and once i reached my shared room i'd have to use my little bucket full of cold water not for drinking or cooking but for the luxury of washing she went to this repetition of the word she'd used in the light of his memories her careless use of the word luxury seemed thoughtless perhaps even stupid melusina knew it was it was a great deal of work for the servants to heat and haul water for a bath, but she never considered how impossible it would be to simply wash if one were poor. She whispered, you must have wanted to bathe very much when you lived in St. Giles. Always, he replied, lifting his head a bit so she could scrub the hair at his nape. 
His neck was hot beneath her fingers. She felt intimate touching him in such a vulnerable spot. That sounds terrible, she said as she rinsed his hair, causing it to lie flat and glistening against his skull. He might have been a sulky intent on seducing a mortal. I can see why you'd want a bathing room all to yourself. He opened his eyes, watching her with black, fathomless eyes. Can you? She nodded. Your sympathy is quite dangerous, he mumbled thoughtfully. You might very, very well be my downfall, madame. Her eyebrows winged up. Me? Mm. His sensuous lips twisted as if he were confused. There's something about you that draws me, makes me lose my sense, my intelligence, my very control. He inhaled. You are like an exotic poison in my blood, one that should kill me, but instead keeps me alive. I truly don't know if I can live without you. And that leads to more. I'm not going to tell you what happens next, but the point being, the intimacy in a bath, the intimacy in connecting and learning things that she had taken for granted or was vaguely aware of but not overly aware of it says a lot and it explains so many things and there's just such a connection between these two that I I cannot imagine not having that I can't imagine not communicating with that and and having that kind of thoughtfulness I, I have that with my husband. Like, I mean, you guys have heard Sven and I on here. We are very in sync with each other in many ways. And I trust him with everything I am. I trusted him, like, the first time I talked to him online. And my instincts are usually not to do that. But there was something about him that said, okay, I know you can hurt me, but I know I can trust you at the same time. And I'm just so grateful that... I was able to find that because it helps ease the heart because if you've gone through a lot of trauma, if you've got along through a lot of, of heartbreak and constant issues and stuff like that, it helps to feel like you're connected and someone hears you. And I feel like in that moment, Gideon saw that his wife understood. She didn't maybe understand it on a, on an, level of understanding it from the very point but she understood what he was saying there was something in the way he was expressing himself that made her heart hurt for him and i think that those kind of moments are my favorite kind of romance and there's a lot of things that happen and a lot of things that have to go on and you know there he does things for her like he takes her to an auction and he you know goes to parties with her he learns to kind of interact with the aristocracy and stuff like that but i i really appreciated the fact that they worked together as a unit for majority of this book and i think for a forced marriage or you know it, it's a very nice way of setting up without demeaning either character both their traumas and both of what they've experienced is acknowledged without undercutting the other one I highly recommend this book, guys. Like, the the recommendation is so high it can't be found. <laughs> like, it's off the stratosphere because I think that 2020 has been a pain in the ass. Let's put it that way. It's just been a foobard, right? So, and a lot of us are kind of having to deal with class issues right now. As some people receive more help than others when they get sick, when people are, you know, diagnosed with COVID and pandemic stuff and 
I just, I like the fact that there's a situation and there's a, a romance where the love grows and is, ingen is genuine and there's something there. Like, you trust what these people are saying. You value them. I think Messalina is probably going to be one of my top heroines for the year. Without a doubt. No, there's no question to that. But what I mean is, is I think that she's like, to me, she's very similar to Florence. Again, from Prince of Broadway. I, I think that one thing that really works for both of them is the women know their value. They're not going to let someone debase them just because they can. You know, whether it's family, whether it's someone else, it doesn't matter. They're not going to be debased. Top 10 book, hands down. Now it's time for a review that I received, and it was on Apple Podcasts, and it's by H-E-A-M Cast, which is Happily Ever Math. Uh, it's Analyze and Romanticize. I'm excited that I found this great show about the heroines of romance novels. It's like a private book club with host Jessica as she dives into a deep discussion. Before you know it, you've finished the bite-sized episode and you're left to wait anxiously for more. Subscribe and enjoy. And thank you. I, I'm really glad that people appreciate this and that you guys are following along. And in that vein, I would like to please, please have you fill out the Google form. I have it in my show notes. It's going to go until the end of the month, which is November 30th. It is now probably around the 14th or 15th. And I really need to get some feedback from you guys because I, I want to know what you want more of or what you don't really care for. And I'm asking for that because... With the next year coming up, I'm trying to get a little bit ahead of the game and see where I need to gauge and not gauge. You can find it on there. It's linked on other places. <laughs> it's, you know, I try to put it everywhere. I also want to point out that I have many reviews on Instagram. I recently did one for how to turn a frog into a prince. It's, you know, just a couple paragraphs. You can see how I felt about the book, which is a another, like, romance times or england times as heaving bosoms calls it i have a few more coming up because i've read a few there's actually a bonus story in the end of hoyt's book that i'm actually going to make into an episode on its own because it's so complicated and deep you can also find us us meaning me sven i guess and whatever guest shows up on damsel's podcast at facebook twitter Instagram, LinkedIn as well. We also have a Patreon, which is again at patreon.com slash damsels podcast. And we have a tea Public store. So if you want to buy some merch, if that's up your alley, there are three designs up there. I have a few more I have that I need to put out as soon as I can figure out how to make them because I had some ideas about that. It's got the old logo, the new logo, and then it's got one exclusive kind of like type style for the new logo a little bit of difference on it i hope you guys go check it out t public is doing a ton of sales right now like they've been doing a ton of the 35 percent off sales and stuff like that all that money goes toward keeping the podcast going it's not for me it's literally for buying books it's for you know if the cost of um hosting goes or using the cast which is what I use to record with guests you know all that money goes towards that stuff it, it's not mine <laughs> it's literally just to keep the podcast going I want to thank you guys for listening 
I <laughs> know this is a much shorter episode because I didn't have a guest. A new one will be coming up soon. Again, if you are interested in being a guest, you can email me at damselspodcast at gmail.com. Or if you're on Twitter, honestly, Twitter is your best bet. I'm enjoying the people that are <laughs> guesting on this show. I want to expand it. I have a few more that I would like to come up with in the next couple months that are, one of them was particularly big. So I don't want to give anything away, but it's particularly big. So I want to talk about it. And I should have a new episode coming up soon talking about <laughs> Olivia Dade's spoiler alert because who doesn't love like cosplay, right? Like I know so many people in cosplay. So I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to talk about it. Wait, before I go, for the holiday season, I'm going to promote something a little bit. I would love it if anyone has any extra money, if you could donate to the um, low-cost spay noodle programs, wherever you're from. This is especially important in rural areas because it helps people that maybe can't afford the three or four hundred dollars to spay a neuter to pay. And oftentimes it's like thirty or forty dollars, which is you know a tenth of the price, if not less. And they also sometimes they often work with like other places to do like low-cost vaccinations and stuff like that. It's just it's very helpful because I've been poor like. I didn't have running water pour at some point during having this podcast and having that organization help me find homes for community cats that I was taking care of, you know, having them, helping them find what they needed. It worked out for us. Right. So I want to promote that. That's my thing this, this winter. I'll probably be talking about it until around the end of the holidays. So probably about mid June, January. I know my, I know my months, I promise January. Uh, but I want to talk about it and I'm going to promote it a little bit because I think that, uh, sometimes people don't know that actually giving money to there also ends up helping to feed like community cats, which is a lot of older people, uh, a lot of retired people and a lot of people that, that can't get out often do that. And it's like their, their form of, interaction with other living beings that yeah, they often will help provide that or litter to animals that need it in homes and you know food and uh, whatever else maybe along the way so I want to point that out I personally love <laughs> this is mine I personally love leftover pets in Winder Georgia that one is a very necessary one in that county because it's the only low-cost low-spay neuter for that county the, the other closest ones are like 30, 40 minutes by car, and not everyone has a car, so there are issues trying to get animals there and, and get things done, and Leftover Pets does such a really good job, and I want to just give them a little bit of a shout out for that. I know this really has not a lot to do with this romance, but it did mention the dog, and the dog made me think about it, so there there is a connection there. Okay. I will leave a link to the Leftover Pets because they do a lot of really good things and they help out. They do TNR, which is really important for community cat colonies and it kind of creates a better balance. Uh, if you guys have any questions, again, you can email me at Damsel's Podcast. I will talk about <laughs> that kind of stuff all day long. I totally promote it. If you ever go on my, my personal Facebook, you'll see it all the time. And I hope you guys have a really, really good day.
because every day is a blessing, even when we don't feel it. There is usually one thing a day that makes us smile. And even that little one thing is so important when you're getting to a really tough time of the year. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye. Mm -hmm.